This program was produced with the support of StoryHive, creativity connected by TELUS. For more information, please visit storyhive.com. The following is based on a true story that happened in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada in 1918. The story is based on historical primary sources, including surviving case files, criminal reports, and other contemporary documents and accounts. The first person accounts spoken throughout this narrative are taken word for word from surviving transcripts. We have engaged voice actors to read portions of these transcripts, and while these quotes have at times been abridged or slightly rearranged for clarity, every word is based on the historical record. Some of the scenes described include details of violent acts. Listener and parental discretion is advised. The discovery of Joseph Snyder and his nephew Stanley Snyder, shot and burned on their farm in June 1918, was big news in the village of Grand Prairie, Alberta. Rumors were spreading and the community was on edge. The police were entertaining the idea of a murder-suicide, believing Stanley Snyder had shot his nephew before setting fire to his own cabin and turning the gun on himself. Now, on June 24th, four days after the discovery of the Snyders, four more bodies are found on another nearby farm. With six murdered men at two separate farms, other motives are starting to make sense. Motives like robbery, revenge, cover-up. In this episode, we'll meet the men of the Patton outfit and explore the grisly details of the Patton crime scene. I'm Chris Sapola. I'm Chris Beauchamp. This is Blood on the Prairie. On June 19th, the morning before Daniel Lowe discovered Joseph Snyder's burning cabin, Alexander Sandy Peebles found some horses wandering around in his wheat field. He recognized the animals as belonging to his nearby neighbor, Ignis Patton. Sandy collected the animals and walked them back to Patton's farm, about a mile down the road to the west. No one seemed to be home at the Patton place. A wagon sat in the yard, covered in a tarp. Peebles stopped at the fence, where Ignis Patton's dog was fiercely barking. I went up on foot and the dog met me at the fence and I could not get in. I did not try very hard. Keeping his distance from the dog, Sandy Peebles let the horses into Patton's yard. I just decided that they were away and would look after everything when they came home, and uh, I went home. He assumed that Patton and his partners were away on one of their short trips. This would not have been unusual. Sandy Peebles knew Ignis Patton, fur trapper. The two men had been neighbors and perhaps even friends for about seven years, with only one other farm in between theirs. Patton was known for spending weeks or months away tending his trap line on the Wapiti River, alongside his partners and roommates, Charles Zimner and John Wuwant. We'll meet them shortly. Ignis Patton had set up his homestead in 1911, along the banks of the Bear Creek, 
some seven miles or 11 kilometers northwest of the village of Grand Prairie. By all accounts, Patton had done quite well for himself during his time homesteading here. He had cultivated his quarter section of land, meeting all of the government's requirements for settlers at the time, and he had broken enough of his land that his crops were earning him a profit as well. As historian David Leonard explained to us, Anyone who was 18 years old could apply for a homestead for $10. You pay your $10, and then if you are granted the right to homestead that quarter, you are um, required to live on that quarter section for six months of a year for at least three years. You're required to build a dwelling and two outbuildings, one being a barn, of course. You are required to um, put in an access road, and then you're required to break land and clear and crop 10 acres a year for three years. And if you do that to the satisfaction of the homestead inspector, the land is yours. And that's how most of Western Canada was settled, through the homestead provisions of the uh, Dominion Lands Act. Within his first years on the land, Patton would have built a log cabin and several outbuildings. And sometime, likely within the last few years, he upgraded his home to a two-story wood frame house. This was something of an achievement among the farmers in the area in 1918, many of whom still lived in simple log and sod roof cabins, like Joseph Snyder's. By any measure, Ignis Patton was a shrewd and successful entrepreneur. It was no secret in the area that Patton and his partners were pulling up their stake to relocate north. They'd done well over the past winter and, having sold their haul of furs, the group was disposing of other possessions too. The men had withdrawn all of their funds from the bank and had bought provisions for a long trip north and a new start near Fort Vermilion. As Sandy Peebles later testified, Patton told him all about his plans over lunch the previous Sunday at Peebles Place. He spent all his time telling me what he was going to do. He and his partners were going to look for a ranch, and the government was going to furnish them cattle and ship them in free, and everything was laid out for a large ranch. He said that the bunch would probably have about $5,000 to invest. It was likely that Sandy Peebles had also visited Patton's place more than once over the years. Although, according to his testimony, he hadn't been there in at least a few months. Still, Sandy Peebles knew Ignis Patton and his partners. He later referred to the group as the Patton Outfit. Over the next few days, Sandy Peebles found Patton's horses back at his crops two more times. He walked the horses home each time. On the first of these visits, he again stopped at the fence, where he was held back by Patton's dog. The house looked as quiet as it had a few days earlier. Nobody home. Sandy Peebles must have felt a growing sense of unease, since he knew how much Patton cared about his dog. Patton had proudly shown him some tricks he had taught the dog. The dog was as close as he could get to Mr. Patton at all times. 
When the horses turned up for the third time, Sandy Peebles suspected something was wrong. Remember, this is just four days after the bodies of Joseph and Stanley Snyder were discovered in their burned-out cabin. And Sandy Peebles was also a good friend of Joseph Snyder. Sandy Peebles and Joseph Snyder had worked together and traveled to the region in 1910 as part of the settlement boom. The two men had even chosen their individual plots of land and filed their claims with the land agent at the same time, on August 16, 1910. They eventually settled in as relative neighbors, a couple of miles apart, working their individual quarter sections and building a life in what was being marketed at the time as the last Great West, the Grand Prairie of the Peace River country in northwestern Alberta. Grand Prairie became a village in April 1914, the first incorporated community in the Peace River country. And in 1919, it was elevated to the status of a town with over 500 people. The Peace River country, Grand Prairie in particular, was separated so far from, from Edmonton and from other areas. The railway having come in from the north in 1916 saw the development of the subdivided communities of Sexsmith and Claremont at that time. And yet I would still argue that this area prior to the advent of the railway was the last major region of North America to be settled on a frontier basis where you had people living like right on the edge of uh, civilization right on the cusp of uh, survival in, in, in many cases. And um, the last true frontier area, I think, because it was developed without the benefit of a railway. The Snyder murders were almost certainly on people's mind when Patton's horses turned up for that third time around 8 or 9 in the morning of Monday, June 24th. It must have been a shock for Peebles when police turned up at his place a few days earlier, on the morning of the Snyder discovery, asking if he knew where Joseph was and telling him about the fire and the first body discovered. Of course, that body would turn out to be his friend Joseph. This time, Sandy Peebles was intent on getting close to the Patton house. I took them home this time so that I could find out if anything was wrong. Everything looked very quiet. I did not go very close to the house as the dog was there. I called and no one answered. Everything appeared to be as though they just quit work. What do you mean by quit work? Everything was lying about as if ready to load. Referring to Exhibit C, this is supposed to be a log building to the north of another building? Yes. Patton's farm included the two-story main house, and at its back, a more crude log stable or storehouse. In front of this storehouse was the tarp-covered wagon. Was there anything in the wagon? I did not examine the wagon. I decided to go to the new shack where they lived, I went to go to the door and the dog was there. I looked in the window on the west side and saw nothing. The windows had been boarded up on their upper halves with just a portion of glass visible at the bottom. Peebles also looked into the east window 
where he saw a bed with a tent or tarpaulin thrown over the whole thing. Pressed against the window, Peebles also detected the sickly smell of decay. That is when I made up my mind. Uh, there was something wrong. Returning quickly home, Sandy Peebles sent his brother Delbert into Grand Prairie to fetch the police. Detective Sergeant Egan of the Alberta Provincial Police headed out to the Patton Place to investigate. He brought two colleagues, Corporal McPherson and Sergeant Woodhouse. The group picked up Sandy Peebles on the way to help them find Patton's farm. Arriving at the scene at 7.30 in the evening, Detective Sergeant Egan and the men found the same odd quiet at the Patton Yard. The wagon lay half-loaded outside the storehouse covered by a tarp. Supplies lay strewn about. Sugar, flour, other sundries. It looked like the men had been packing to leave. Coming around to the main house, the men found Patton's dog guarding the front door. Corporal McPherson fired several shots from his service revolver to scare the dog away, and the men finally approached the house. The door was locked, but Egan was able to open the lock with a skeleton key. As the door opened, they immediately noticed the smell. Covering their noses and mouths as best they could, the men entered the house. Detective Sergeant Egan led the way. On entering the door, we turned to our right into a furnished room used as a living room and bedroom, and we found on a tarpaulin two dead bodies of two men. Later, police would bring witnesses to the scene to confirm the identities of the bodies. These two men, found inside the house, under a tarp on a crude log and straw bed, were Ignis Patton and one of his two business partners, John Wuwand. Wuwand was known locally as Little John the Russian or Russian Jack, as reported in a local newspaper. Although whether he was Russian or not, it was tough to say. Little John Wuwand had been shot in the head. Patton's death was more grisly. Someone had cut Ignis Patton's throat. I can remember the bodies were lying close together with the heads pointing to the north and east, and the man to the left was slightly turned to the man on the right. Leaving the house, the men walked back around to the locked storehouse. We went out to search for more bodies. We went to look in the storehouse and the door was locked with a chain and padlock. Forcing the lock, Egan found a third body later identified as Frank Parzikowski. Parzikowski is best described as an acquaintance of the Patton outfit. He did some blacksmith work for Ignis Patton, but lived on his own property across the road to the north. Parzikowski was found just inside the storehouse door, face down. He had been shot in the back left of the head. We found the dead body inside the door. The head of the body was lying against a partition a little to the left of the entrance door. The body was lying face downwards, with the left hand up over the head as if seeking protection, and was shot through the back and a lot of blood on the head. In his right hand, Parzikowski was clutching a small purse in his pocket, 
which contained a dollar and eleven cents in silver coins. A pipe lay on the ground to the right of the man's corpse. Egan testified that it looked like it had been burning when it fell there. We came out of the shack and told Constable McPherson to go to town and get the coroner and officer commanding and notify them what we had found. Leaving the storehouse, the men approached the wagon. We found something in the wagon outside. I said it smells like a dead body, but I guess it's just an old robe. There was flour, sugar, and other things thrown on top. I uncovered a man's head and found a body in the wagon. The smell was overbearing, and I had to get away to get fresh air. The body in the wagon would later be identified as Patton's third partner, Charles Zimner. Described as stooped-shouldered and humped up, with his long brown beard and fur-trapping lifestyle, Zimner must have made for a rugged character. Zimner's body was heavily decomposed after six days of June weather under a tarp in the back of the wagon. He was eventually ID'd by his false teeth, with a gold tooth in the front. Grand Prairie doctor Joseph Conroy would again act as medical examiner, visiting the scene that night and then returning the next day, alongside his colleague Dr. McDonald, to perform the autopsies. Dr. Conroy described the scene in the main house, where Patton and Wuwand were found. On arriving at the place, we went into a house and saw two dead bodies lying close together, parallel to each other, their heads toward the north and their feet toward the south. They were both lying on their stomach. The bodies were in a badly decomposed state. The floor around was stained with blood. The first autopsy was performed on Little John Wuwand, or as he was called by Dr. Conroy in his inquest testimony, John Woodwood. This is as good a time as any to discuss the challenges and contradictory spellings and pronunciations of names throughout the historical documents. In most cases, we found numerous spellings of the names of major characters in this story. For example, Patton is most frequently spelled P-A-T-A-N, although it's also spelled P-A-T-O-N and P-A-T-T-O-N, among other variations. John Wuwand is one of the best examples of this, being referred to at times as Wuwand, Woodwand, Woodwood, and Woodard, among other variants. Much of the time, this was down to the challenge of anglicizing Eastern European names for an English-speaking society, like the Dominion of Canada. With immigrants pouring in from various backgrounds, many were forced or chose to alter their names as a form of assimilation. We also found several instances where people used first and middle names interchangeably depending on social context, or where transcribers made choices to spell orally spoken names in certain ways. We've done our best to choose spellings and pronunciations that reflect the most common usage and our best cultural understanding. With that out of the way, we can return to the grisly details of the Patton murder scene. Dr. Conroy described the autopsy of John Wuwand in his testimony at the inquest a few days later. Remember, Wuwand was found in the main house, on the bed with Ignis Patton. He had been shot in the side of the head, the bullet traveling forward. 
The first one we did was John Woodward. We found a wound in the right temple, two inches posterior of the right eye and about half an inch above the right eye. The wound contained hair which looked as though it had been carried there by a bullet. A second wound was found directly below the right eye, which would be the exit of the bullet. The exit wound had shattered the bones under John Wuwan's eye. In his pocket, the doctors found a small sum of money, which they turned over to police. Regarding Ignis Patton's autopsy, Dr. Conroy would later testify in rather graphic detail that Patton had been cut at least three times across his throat. Ignace Patton. This body was in a badly decomposed state. There was an old scarf found around his neck and throat. On the removal of this old scarf, a badly lacerated wound was literally covered with maggots. On further examination, found that the windpipe was completely severed in its upper part. Two of the incisions were found immediately below and cutting about halfway into the windpipe. The right jugular vein was also severed. No other wounds were found on his person, and we came to the conclusion that the cause of his death was hemorrhage due to cutting of the jugular vein or strangling due to the cutting of the trachea or to both. Investigators would later speculate about why someone would hurt Ignis Patton in this way. We'll get to that eventually. Blacksmith Frank Parzakowski was the man found in the storehouse near to his pipe. And perhaps owing to the locked door and cooler temperature of this north-facing building, his body was less decomposed than the others. Dr. Conroy described his wound as follows. On further examination, found a bullet hole one and a half inches posterior to the left ear. We traced the course of the bullet and found it in the frontal lobe of the brain. We came to the conclusion that this was the cause of his death, finding no other wounds. Someone had shot Frank Parzakowski in the back of the head, apparently from the doorway of the storehouse, before closing and locking the door. Dr. McDonald backed up Dr. Conroy's testimony, adding that the bullet found in Parzakowski's frontal lobe was apparently that of a 38 caliber revolver. No other wounds were found on the body. Bearded Charles Zimner was found in the wagon, partially covered by a tarp. Zimner's head was oriented toward the wagon's tailboard and, according to the testimony of Dr. Conroy, the body was also in a badly decomposing state. The wagon was stained with blood, goods and supplies scattered on the wagon and on the ground nearby. Zimner had also been shot. Charles Zimner, on examination, found that he had a full upper plate of false teeth, containing one gold tooth in front. A hole was found in the back of the skull, about the medium line, just above the foramen magnum. On cutting down to the bone, we found a small quantity of lead adhering to the edge of the wound. We also found the bullet had passed through the spinal cord and had lodged in the anterior part of the first cervical vertebra. No other wound was found, and we came to the conclusion that this was the cause of his death. 
The bodies of Ignis Patton, Charles Zimner, John Wuwand, and Frank Parzakowski had remained undiscovered for the better part of six days, which accounted for the heavy decomposition. Doctors Conroy and McDonald later invoiced the government for a sum of $26.90 for 66 pounds of formaldehyde used to carry out their grim work. Together with Joseph and Stanley Snyder, there were now six dead men across two farms about three miles apart. As would become clear based on the witness testimony, the last time anyone saw people alive at Ignis Patton's was on June 18th around 10 p.m., when Sandy Peebles saw five men in Patton's yard. We'll learn more about that eventually. But for now, it's enough to note that no one saw any activity at the Patton farm on the following day. So the murders were estimated to have occurred between 9.30 p.m. on the night of the 18th and 12 o'clock noon on the 19th. Either way, what this means is that the Patton murders occurred first, on the night before the Snyders were killed. The killer, or killers, shot five of their six victims. At Patton's place, somebody shot neighbor and blacksmith Frank Parzakowski and Patton's two partners. John Wuwand, and bearded Charles Zimner. Then, the next night, moved on to the Snyder farm, shooting Joseph and Stanley Snyder and setting the cabin on fire. Each of these five men were killed by a single bullet to the head. Yet for some reason, Ignis Patton was killed by having his throat cut at least three times. Six dead men, two farms, on two successive nights. It was increasingly hard to believe that the Snyder case was a murder-suicide, and the medical examiners believed that all five bullet wounds were consistent with 38 caliber bullets. By this time, the Snyder inquest had also confirmed that the 38 caliber revolver, allegedly thrown onto the Snyder sod roof, had five spent shell casings still inside it one for each of the men who were shot. The Snyders didn't own a revolver, but Ignis Patton did. A 38 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver, consistent with the murder weapon. Patton's gun was missing from his farm. And that ring of keys, which turned up in Joseph Snyder's burned out cabin, well, those were Ignis Patton's too. The keys were later matched to the locked doors at the Patton property. In the third episode of Blood on the Prairie, we'll delve into some surprising connections between the people involved. We'll hear from local historians to better understand the context of settler life in this remote part of Canada, and we'll hear Daniel Lowe's account of just what he was doing at Joseph Snyder's place on the evening before the Snyder murders. 
Blood on the Prairie is produced by Chris Cipolla and Chris Beauchamp. We'd like to thank the South Peace Regional Archives, the Provincial Archives of Alberta, Alyssa Curry, Karen Simonson, Dr. David Leonard, Brenda Lacroix, the family of Wallace Tansom, Jason Helva, Al Peterson, Casper Towns, Gordy Hackstad, Richard Pizzata, and Laura Beauchamp. Blood on the Prairie was developed thanks to funding provided by Telus Story Hive. Special thanks to Tara Jean Stevens, Jessica Gibson, and the National Screen Institute. Music used in this episode by Unreal SFX, Sid Akaria, Stephen Talmore, Kyle Preston, and Corey Ramon, James Paul Mitchell, Roy Spigler, Michael Vignola, Brianna Tam, Oakfield, and Ziv Moran. Our voice actors in this episode included Lyle West, Jordan Fuller, Scott Maitland, Derek Hall, and Cameron Donald. Blood on the Prairie is available on all major podcast platforms. For show notes and access to archival sources and other documents relating to the case, as well as photographs from both the 1918 era and the crime scenes in 2021, find us at bloodontheprairie.com. This program was produced with the support of TELUS.